0: turn with me in uh, your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. I misread the notes here. This this gentleman, Phil Novak, a friend from his church uh, uh, was the one who uh, found uh, his wife murdered uh, in his house. But we prayed for them anyway and the Lord heard that. So Matthew 26 starting in verse 57 I'll be reading through verse 68 <clears throat> Listen reverently as I read verse 57 And those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter also was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus in order that they might put him to death. And they did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two, uh, later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you make no answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it you have said it yourself. Nevertheless I tell you Hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes, saying, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you now have, behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He is deserving of death. Then they spat in his face. And beat him with their fists, and others slapped him, and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is the one who hit you? Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for the promises of uh, help when we need it. Lord, the preacher needs it, and those listening need it right now. Would you please help us? Uh, would you please help us not to be led astray, uh, not to lead astray? Would you please help us to understand your word and its import and how it needs to be applied uh, to us personally. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, have you ever um, said of something that you've seen, some event that you've seen, that's not fair. You ever said that? That's not fair. Maybe you're, Brother or sister got to do something that you didn't get to do because they were a little bit older than you were. And you said, that's not fair. I, I shouldn't be able to do that while well, you're too young. That's not fair. Or maybe it was something else. Maybe you, maybe uh, a brother or sister got to uh, have some dessert that you didn't get. You didn't get any. There was none left. And you say, that's not fair. You know what I'm talking about, right? When things don't feel fair or don't seem to be fair. It's like, that's not right. It shouldn't be that way. You've all experienced that at some point, probably many times. I know I did when I was your age. When we say things don't, when we say something's not fair, what we're saying is something's being done, something's happening that shouldn't happen or shouldn't be done. It's just not right. The, this this situation isn't right, is what we're saying. It's all wrong. Well, kids, we are now looking, this morning and in the next, the remainder of, well, almost the remainder of uh, Mark's, Matthew's Gospel, rather, we are looking at, not probably, but very, very definitely, absolutely the most unfair thing that has ever happened or ever will happen in all of human history is recorded in this uh, in this uh, passage that I just read to you, and in following passages. The, the unfairness of not getting to do something that your older brother or sister got to do is, is, can't even be compared to the unfairness of what happened to Jesus, who is God. And also a human being. And he suffered indescribable pain, um, dishonor, shame, abuse from the hands of very, very evil men. This is what unfair is right here. What we're reading about in this text. Keep that in mind as I as I go through this and as we unpack this together. To understand this passage that I'm reading, verses uh, uh, 57 to 68, and to understand what's happening in the rest of this chapter, and also the first uh, large portion of about half of the next chapter, chapters 27, to understand this whole uh, uh, larger section, we need to under, uh, we need to bear in mind something. Otherwise, it gets kind of confusing. It, it does get confusing if you don't bear this in mind. That Jesus underwent two different trials. Not one, but two different trials. And the, fir- the first trial was a church trial. Fancy word for that is ecclesiastical trial. And the second trial was a civil trial. Before a secular, uh, audience, if you will, or a, se- a, se- uh, a secular judge or judiciary. But there are definitely two trials here. And both of these two trials, both the church trial and the uh, civil trial, had three different stages in them. Uh, which are, when you compare all the gospel writers' accounts, you get this, get this point. Some there's certain things that are left out by one gospel writer or another, but when you put it all together, you counted up each of those separate trials had three distinct um, stages to them so I'm going to just briefly mention them. Uh, this is something again I 'm not, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I want you to hear it now and you want to keep, you need to keep this in mind over the next subsequent weeks as we continue to work our way through the latter part of matthew's gospel. So first of all, the ecclesiastical trial the church, the church trial. That began with a preliminary hearing before Annas, who was the former high priest, and that's recorded in John chapter 18. We're not going to look at it. But that was the first stage of the church trial. The second was the trial that's recorded here in the passage we're looking at today, which is before the Sanhedrin, that is the Jewish religious leaders. And then the third stage of the church trial occurs... Before that same body, but after daybreak the next day. So this is happening at night, and then they, he reappears before the Sanhedrin, and that's uh, the third stage of that church or ecclesiastical trial. The civil trial, uh, has three stages as well. The first is before Pilate, which is going to, we're going to read about that in chapter 27, verses 11 through 14. The second civil uh, element or stage of the civil trial is before Herod, before Herod Agrippa, and that is, uh, or it might be Antipas. Anyway, uh, Herod, and that's recorded in Luke chapter twenty-three, verses six through twelve. And then the final stage of that civil trial is 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 uh, coming back before Pilate. He comes back before Pilate, and that is recorded in chapter 27 of Matthew, verses 15 through 25. So we're going to get to that all in subsequent weeks, unless Jesus returns or something else happens. Uh, but hopefully we'll get through all of that material. But point is, two trials, three stages in each trial. So that at least can help you get navigate these chapters, which seem pretty complex sometimes when you're going through. Them, like well, well, I'm I'm lost here. What's well, who's this before? You know what's going on here? Uh, so that'll help you. This is the trial before the Sanhedrin, recorded here in 57 through 68. And this trial is an absolute farce. It's, I would call it a joke, but it's, there's nothing remotely funny about it. Uh, this is a, uh, a farce of a trial. For one, it was utterly illegal what transpired. And by the way, I'm gonna get to my three points in a minute. It was utterly illegal what transpired according to Jewish rabbinical law. They were violating their own laws of the rabbis that they held higher higher than scripture, uh, these men did. And they were violating those the, the laws of the intertestamental rabbis that they had established uh, over the centuries. Uh, how did they do this? Well, first of all, Jesus' arrest was arranged as a result of a bribe. They bribed uh, uh, Judas. Secondly, no hearings in in a case involving capital punishment were allowed to be initiated on the eve of a major feast. And this was the eve of a major feast. Rabbinical law forbade it. They did it anyway. didn't make any difference. Uh, Thirdly, no trial involving a life or death uh, sentence, uh, a sentence that would involve either uh, life or death, the possibility of death, was allowed at night was allowed during the, the night hours. And yet, this is taking place at night. And then finally, the other thing that made this so highly uh, improper and illegal was that Jesus was asked by the high priest himself to incriminate himself. This is just, this is just horrific um, uh, adjudication. A fancy word there that I'm not sure I'm using properly. But anyway, this is just lousy stuff in terms of uh, the procedurally. Uh, it was also an absolute farce, not only because it was illegal, but because the, uh, the jury uh, the jury had absolutely no intention at all of giving Jesus a fair hearing to determine whether or not the charges against him were founded or unfounded. That, that was utterly irrelevant to them. This was, um, they had decided the outcome of the trial ahead of time. They already knew where they were going, what they were going to needed to accomplish, and this was a kangaroo court. That's all it was—an absolute farce. So, question is kind of uh, worth asking here: Why did they even bother with all this? Why? Why go through the motions? Why the kangaroo court? Why bother to hold a trial when the outcome is a foregone conclusion—that you've already decided as a jurist? Two reasons: One their verdict needed to be made official. It had to have an official veneer to it. As officers of the Old Testament church, the Jewish church, we need to officially declare this is our verdict. So they needed that. But also, they needed to come up with reasons for their verdict so that they could justify Jesus' sentence that they handed out to the Jewish people and perhaps more importantly to Pilate. They had to come up with it and they hadn't yet come up with a reason that was going to be was going to hold water uh by the time they're they're here at this point. At this event, and so this is needed to get Jesus to either incriminate himself or for for to get, to get enough false witnesses whose stories match up, whatever. But they needed this time to figure things out so that they could present it to the people, but especially to Pilate. And I'll get to that more uh, later on. Now, the three points, uh, the remainder of our time. First, we are looking at in verses fifty nine to sixty one, Jesus. Complete innocence, the fact that Jesus' complete innocence is confirmed by his trial. Here, his complete innocence is confirmed by his trial. Secondly, Jesus' messianic claim is clearly set forth during his trial. And then finally, Jesus' sublime dignity shines forth in the way he conducts himself During his trial, first, Jesus' complete innocence is confirmed by what transpires uh, in this sham trial uh, that the Sanhedrin was holding. And his innocence is confirmed in spite of the best efforts on the part of these um, wicked men to find testimony that would incriminate him. Uh, These men were desperate. to get rid of Jesus, to kill him, to get him off the face of the earth so that uh, he was no longer a thorn in their side. They were losing their hold on the Jewish people in terms of their influence over the Jewish people because of Jesus and because of his preaching and because of his persuasiveness in in that preaching. Uh, Jesus himself had publicly denounced them Uh, 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 embarrassed them, uh, shamed them in front of uh, uh, large groups of people and exposed their hypocrisy before them. Um, They hated him. And they were desperate. And they would do almost anything they could out of that desperation to destroy him. So what they do is, again, they put all the rules aside, all of the rabbinic fathers that they supposedly thought so highly of more than the scriptures. They put all those rules and tossed them out. And they're going to look, and did in fact look, on this occasion, the high priest himself did it, for damning testimony against Jesus. But they couldn't find any. Verse 59, now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying, they kept trying, it was an ongoing effort, kept trying to obtain false testimony. It didn't need to be true, in fact, we're happy to have it be false. But they kept trying to find, obtain false testimony against Jesus in order that they might put him to death. And verse 60, the first part says, And they did not find any. Why? Didn't they find any? You all better know the reason before I say it. Because there was none. Jesus had done absolutely nothing wrong. Other than be who he was, which is the Christ, which is, uh, they, they even call him the Christ there, those that were spitting on him in verse 68. Prophesy to us, you Christ. And they probably were mocking him, but it was absolutely true. The Spirit was making those men say that. That's who he was. And that's all he was. And that's the only reason why they wanted him dead, because he was in fact God's anointed. He was their king, whom they were defying and rebelling against treacherously. And this was God, the Son in the flesh, the sinless, thrice-holy God of the universe and who is now the Redeemer of God's people. To find anything against him that would... that is even slightly wrong, is impossible. Fool's errand. And worse. So they decide, because they can't come up with anything that, uh, uh, that uh, is convincing would convince anybody that he's worthy of death, they decide to manufacture evidence against him. Find it. Make it happen. Somehow. And so finally... Testimony was offered that was false. We read that uh, again um, in uh, in verse sixty. Uh, Matthew gives us one example. He says, "Even though many false witnesses came forward." Oh, sorry, I, that, that's the la- the tail end of the previous sentence. The, the last part of verse sixty says it says but but later on, two two false witnesses came forward and said, "This man stated." I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. That was their testimony about what Jesus said. This is probably, their, their uh, words there are probably an allusion to what Jesus said uh, in uh, recorded for us in John's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 19, when he said to the crowd, destroy this temple, referring to his body, Destroy this temple. In other words, you destroy this temple, you folks that are that are listening to me. And in three days, I will raise it up again. Maybe this, these two test, these uh, false witnesses, one or both of them were there on that occasion and heard those words, um, and decided to to change it from ra- from you destroy this temple to I will destroy this temple, or I can destroy this temple. that was not merely a misrepresentation of what Jesus said their testimony was. It was a full-blown lie that just cobbled together a few of Jesus' words and just twisted it 180 degrees. That's the testimony that was given. was false testimony. And they were, for a while at least, uh, Mark's Gospel uh, tells us they... Were unable to get uh, two witnesses whose testimony agreed. For a while, they and uh, I'm not sure exactly when Mark was referring during this uh, portion of the evening, but but he says that they couldn't get consistent testimony. I won't bother to read it, but it's in Mark. Uh, uh, it's in Mark 14:59. In cases of, and this is why there was, uh, why that was so important, you had to get corroboration between two witnesses, because in cases of capital crimes, where death was the, the punishment if you were found guilty, the law, the Mosaic law, required at least two witnesses whose testimonies were in complete agreement. Required by the law, by the Mosaic law. Uh, and if they were not in complete agreement, those two testimonies, then they invalidated each other. Uh, and the guy was declared innocent. So they had to get their stories lined up. And they couldn't, at least for a time, they couldn't even coordinate their witnesses' lies because it was short, such short notice, apparently. Uh, events were happening so quickly that they couldn't get everybody, get their stories straight, their lies straight. But eventually, they managed uh, to make it happen uh, and to concoct a... Uh, a charge that uh, they thought would stick, and and ultimately uh, uh, got them what they wanted. But Jesus, Jesus, God the Son, the God Man, was completely innocent, and you all know that. And this text was one of several uh, in the Gospel account, Matthew's and the other Gospel writers as well, that proclaim through the mouth of oftentimes through the mouth of Jesus' enemies that he was innocent. Secondly, in this passage, we learn not only that Jesus' complete innocence was confirmed by the trial, but Jesus' messianic claim is clearly set forth by him during his trial. And confirmed, as I said, by those who spat upon him and beat him in verse 68, when they called him the Christ. They didn't realize they were confirming the truth, but they were. But Jesus himself sets forth his messianic claims in verses 63 and 64. Unambiguously declares himself to be the Messiah at this trial. But it was only after the high priest put him under a solemn oath. The high priest, uh, let's see, yeah, after after he put him under a solemn oath, uh, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you, that is, I, I demand uh, um, that you you declare uh, with God as your witness. Uh, I adjure you by there it is by the living God. So there's the oath, and that's what caused Jesus to open his mouth and declare what he did, um, and it made it impossible because uh, because such an oath uh, invocation of the name of God was was made by the high priest. It was impossible for him to not say what he uh, uh, answer, and so he did. And what is the answer? Well, Matthew says Jesus said to him. Uh, let me see. I'll reread the uh, the high priest question again. I adjure you, or statement. I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, "You have said it yourself. In other words, you just said that I am the Christ, the Son of God." Okay. Now that's pretty straightforward, but it's not quite as explicit as Mark's rendering of what Jesus said on this occasion turn with me to mark chapter 14 verse 61 uh, and following this, so this is Mark's account of this trial this this stage the first stage of this uh, second stage rather of this trial and he says in we read in verse six, uh, 61 but he kept silent and made no answer again the high priest was questioning him and saying to him and notice here mark doesn't record that it was a it was a uh, uh, a solemn oath that was uh, that the high priest used uh, demanding jesus answer in the name of god demanding that anyway and uh, and he said to him are you the christ the son of the blessed one and then here is Mark's record of what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am. And I think most of you know that I am just isn't your standard I am. Uh, the verse, use of the first person uh, singular and the verb to be in the present. This is a name. This is Exodus 314, uh, being repeated. That's the burning bush. Moses is before the burning bush. The angel of the Lord, who is the Lord, as you, if you read that passage carefully, you realize it's the Lord, is the angel of the Lord, and, and multiple passages. Whenever you read the angel of the Lord, it's the Lord, uh, veiling himself in the form of an angel. But he says there in, uh, uh as Moses is talking, uh, Moses says in verse 13 of Exodus 3, Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to send the sons of Israel, excuse me, behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now, they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, "I am has sent me to you." That is the divine name. We don't know how it was pronounced. Uh, there were just four four uh, consonants that were used. That were uh, we know it was the verb to be um, uh, was the uh, was the verb that was being used, but we don't know the exact uh, way it was uh, s- uh, pronunciation of it. Anyway, Jesus is saying, I'm Jehovah. I'm Jehovah. That's what he said to them on that occasion. And they got, a po- and they got the point. We read that uh, Caiaphas tore his robe, acting as if he was overwhelmed with indignation and grief. Oh, I can't believe you did that. When in fact he was filled with fiendish glee that he'd got him. And what Jesus said, of course, provided the grounds for them to sentence them as they did. Then the high priest tore his robe, saying, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you, meaning you other men on the Sanhedrin, have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He is deserving of death. They got what they wanted. It was self-evident to them that uh, that Jesus was guilty. Uh, but here's the thing. It was self evident to them, also at least when they suppressed what they knew in their heart of hearts, that uh, that a man such as Jesus could not be the divine Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, described in Daniel chapter seven, seven, and referenced in numerous places throughout the Old Testament. They were just like, it can't be him, it can't be Jesus, can't be that Messiah, that that anointed one of God, because why? Well. He's been imprisoned. He's been arrested. He's been imprisoned. He's been abandoned by his followers, and now he's been delivered helplessly into our hands, and we're—he's answering to us right now. God doesn't answer to us. This can't be God. Oh, so they're trying to convince themselves. Couldn't possibly be God. And if he's not God, if he's not the, if he's not, if he's not the divine Messiah, um, as the Old Testament r- represented him to be, and he was and is, uh, then what? he said about himself, was the height of blasphemy. If he wasn't the Messiah, it was the height of blasphemy. I am. I am Jehovah. Or Yahweh, rather. Or however it was pronounced. And so they charge, they get him, and condemn him, and note this, for a spiritual crime, a religious crime. Blasphemy. Right, they knew he. They were like, "We've got him on blasphemy. He's he's a blasphemer because he he can't. We're not going to allow the possibility that he's actually the divine Messiah, even though they'd seen all the miracles. They knew, on some level, they all knew, but they weren't allowed to. They weren't going to allow themselves to even consider that as a possibility. But they knew they had him on blasphemy if he wasn't the Messiah, and they'd convinced himself or tried to that he wasn't. Um, That worked fine before them." proved his guilt before them, if you will, but it was not a charge that they could bring before Pilate and get any results with. Pilate didn't give a hoot about their religious convictions. He was just a servant of the emperor. And so they needed to bring him before Pilate on a political charge. A charge that would stick because of uh, that, that, that would be impressive, impressive to their Roman overlords. The law, the law of Moses, instructed the Jews to put a blasphemer to death. They would have happily, you know, killed him right then and there the, uh, if they had their druthers in that, in that, uh, on that, this occasion, the Sanhedrin. But the Romans had taken the power of the sword away from the Jews when they conquered them. And reserved that prerogative for themselves alone. So they said, You Jews can't kill each other, we do the killing around here. So if the Jewish leaders wanted Jesus dead and they couldn't do it themselves, get the job done themselves, they would have to have, they would have to charge him before the uh, Roman uh, authorities, Pilate, with an offense that warranted death under Roman law. So what they do is they charge him with being a messianic pretender, and here's the key part: who is trying to incite the Jews, the Jewish people, to rebellion against their Roman, uh, um, the Roman emperor and his subjects. Luke, Luke's Gospel, chapter 23 makes this point, verses one and two, and then I'm going to read verse 14 as well. And this is Luke uh, 23. Um, And this is where you get clarity, which you don't get it in uh, Matthew and Mark's gospel so much, uh, but you get it here in Luke. Uh, And again, this is the same incident, same account, same situation. He says in verse 1 and 2, he says, Then the whole body of them, this is the Sanhedrin, arose and brought him, Jesus, before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, Jesus, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. I'm just telling a Roman servant, this a Roman subject who is a, a Roman uh, magistrate this, who's under the emperor. We got a guy who's saying he's king here. And who's saying don't pay taxes to Caesar? And then if you go skip down to verse fourteen, when Pilate a little bit later on uh, uh, summons the chief priests and the rulers of the uh, of the people. In verse thirteen, he says. In verse fourteen, he said to them, "You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion." So you see, that's that was the charge. He's. He's doing this religious thing. He's pretending to be our Messiah, but he's really out to overthrow Caesar and your power, your, your authority over us. He wants to be king not C- and rather than have Caesar as king. And he's coming after you all. Insurrection, which is what that would be, was very definitely a capital offense in the Roman uh, Empire. And it was a charge that very definitely... Uh, was getting Pilate's attention. Jesus was not a pretender. He was the Christ. He was the one who had come to redeem his people from their sins and to be their king, our king, and indeed the messianic king of the universe. Who would eventually hand over all of the subdued universe to the Father at the end? Jesus. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.